When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back to Ohio versus the World. It's episode three, and today we're talking about the most important, if not the greatest band in music history, the Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo, the Fab Four. We'll follow them through their Beatlemania years in the U.S. and across the globe, including their very eventful and riotous, yes, I said riotous, appearances in the Buckeye State. The Beatles played four shows in the state of Ohio, and we'll have guests and historians that were at those crazy nights, especially their 1964 and 66 concerts in Cleveland. But Ohio, like most episodes, is just a vehicle to let us tell you the great stories in American history. After all, we are Ohio v. the World, an American history podcast. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can go to evergreenpodcast.com, hear all our old episodes, they have a bunch of great music podcasts, a great Bruce Springsteen podcast, and an entire history channel with eight or nine shows and more joining the network as we speak. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify now has a rate and review, uh, and press subscribe on our show anywhere you get your podcasts, they'll go directly into your feed onto your phone. And like our page on Facebook, Ohio vs. the World. So we're posting content about these episodes pretty much every day. It's a great way to stay up to date and interact with us about the episodes here in Season 7. During our long hiatus between Season 6 and 7, Peter Jackson's groundbreaking documentary, The Beatles, Get Back, was released. Nearly eight hours long, I loved it. But I'm a musician in my spare time. Whether you're a fan of The Beatles or not, they changed music. And they made music history. Unless you listen to classical or jazz, The Beatles' impact is felt in whatever music you listen to. Twice Rolling Stone magazines dubbed them the greatest music artists in history. They sold over 600 million albums and singles. Think about that, 600 million. 20 Billboard number 1 singles. We're going to start our show when they arrive on American shores, really a little bit before that, but we'll follow their story until the end of their touring days, which ends a week after a show at Crosley Field in Cincinnati. We'll relive Beatlemania from Ed Sullivan to that first insane United States tour, the Beatles dealing with Jim Crow segregation in the South, Shea Stadium in 1965, some of their greatest albums come out in these years. Rubber Soul, Revolver, the infamous Bigger Than Jesus comments are made by John Lennon to cause a big kerfuffle. Somewhere in between there, they even managed to help get rock and roll banned in Cleveland. That's also with the help of one of our guests. We've got a fabulous four guests lined up today and so much to get to. Let's follow the long and winding road of Beatlemania. It's episode three, Ohio versus the Beatles. The world of popular music is pretty boring in 1963 in America. 
The only song from the top of the charts I enjoyed was really Surfing USA. That's the first big hit for the Beach Boys. I actually just saw the Beach Boys live last week. Mike Love and the boys are still out there doing it. But it was a lot of the slower songs at the top of the pops. The Beatles will make their appearance on the charts in the final weeks of 1963. We talked to our first guest, author Dave Schwenson from Cleveland. He's a Beatles historian, the author of two books, The Beatles in Cleveland and The Beatles at Shea Stadium. We talked to Dave about the state of pop music in 1963, just before everything changes. Because things were very different in 1963. It was a very different country. Think about the music in 1963. The, the dangerous rock and rollers were gone by this time. I mean, Elvis had been in and out of the army, making movies in Hollywood. Little Richard had been in an airliner over Australia during a lightning storm. He prayed if it landed safely, he would never sing the devil's music again. He kept his word for a while. Chuck Berry, I think, was in jail. And Jerry Lee Lewis had married his 13-year-old cousin. And nobody wanted to know these guys. So the whole music scene changed. It was Pat Boone, White Bucks, Letter Sweaters, Bobby Vinton, Frankie Avalon. This will give you a whole idea of what the music scene was like in the United States. In the fall of 1963, the number one record, number one song was Dominique by the Singing Nun. From Dallas, Texas, the Flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly. But, you know, November 22nd, 1963, our world changed completely in this country. You know, not only for adults, but also for the preteens, teenagers, the baby boomers. JFK was assassinated in Dallas and everything changed. We had an old man, Lyndon Johnson, in the White House. Uh, we we're going to go to war because there was the Cold War. Who shot JFK? We're still arguing that one. The whole country went into mourning. And I always point out to the baby boomers, when they think about this, their memories are always in black and white because all we had was black and white television. It was only 79 days later. On a Sunday night, February 9th, 1964, Ed Sullivan introduced North America to the Beatles. Into this nation in mourning comes four kids from Liverpool, England. Lower middle class upbringings, the Beatles honed their craft playing the clubs in Liverpool, like the Cavern Club, becoming a sensation in the early 60s in Hamburg, West Germany, a city crawling with American servicemen. By 1963, songs like Please Please Me and Love Me Do were the top of the UK charts. At the end of the year, the Beatles were set to begin what would become known as the British Invasion. We'll play you the moment that they were first heard on US radio, followed by our second guest, Janice Mitchell. Back then, she was a teenager in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, my former stomping grounds. Her name is Janice Hawkins. It's about to have her entire life changed when she heard the Beatles' new single, I Want to Hold Your Hand. We're introducing something brand new and exclusive here at WWDC. Marcia, the microphone here on the Carol James Show is yours. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time on the air in the United States, here are the Beatles singing, I Want to Hold Your Hand. November 26, 1963, I'm in the kitchen, and we heard that there was a new disc jockey coming to Cleveland from Chicago named Jerry G. And in those days, disc jockeys, they could bring their own records. You know, they could play what they wanted. So we were hoping he was going to bring new records. And he introduces a group. I thought he said the Beagles, you know, like dogs, Beagles. But then came the first chords of I Want to Hold Your Hand. And it was like, as soon as I heard that, it just reverberated through my whole body and I was like reborn from that moment on. I, I, it was exhilarating. It was so exciting. Oh my gosh, that was that song is now part of my DNA. 
Beatles land at the newly named JFK Airport in New York City on February 7, 1964. Greeted by thousands of fans, they give a press conference, which we'll hear a moment from shortly, but they're slated to play the biggest show in American television on Sunday night, February 9th, The Ed Sullivan Show, 8 p.m. on CBS. I Want to Hold Your Hand is the number one song in America, but no one's ever really seen them live in person in the States. 74 million Americans watch this. It's a country of only 180 million at the time. In quick math, that's like more than 40% of the country was watching. This was the baby boomer generation, the birth of teenage culture taking over the mainstream. They're a powerful demographic socially and for corporate advertising. As the Beatles launch into All My Love and Beatlemania has arrived in the U.S. of A. We hear from Dave Schwenson and Janice Mitchell about seeing the Mop Tops live on television. There was no way to see them actually live. You know, we, we read magazines and we listened to records. We looked at record covers, you know, read about them, talked about them, dreamed about them, wrote stories about them. But this was going to be the actual first time on that little black and white screen in your living room. You know, and mm. there they were. And it was like, oh, my gosh, they're real. Look at them. They're moving. They're talking. We only had three channels. It was 74 million people watched that episode of Ed Sullivan. And it really, it changed everything. Dorothy's in Kansas, it's black and white. Boom, she crash lands in Oz, everything's in color. And that's what happened to our generation that night. These youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! A third guest is a Columbus musician, great dude, lives just down the street from me, Joe Peppercorn. Joe has his band The Wilds, does some great soul stuff, but Joe became a local legend when he began performing what was called the Beatles Marathon. We'll get into how fantastic it is later, but every December in Columbus, Joe Peppercorn and his fabulous band plays every Beatles song in chronological order, and they're spectacular. It's worth the drive if you live in Ohio, hell, it's worth flying into the capital city to see it. This year, it looks like it'll be December 30th. We'll talk much more about it later, but we had a really fun conversation with Joe last month about the Beatles, Sgt. Peppercorn's Marathon, as it's called now. Their song still resonates, still getting insane 26 million listens a month on Spotify. We asked Joe how a simple pop band from Liverpool, England, ended up being so timeless. The songwriting's top-notch. The performances are, the the production, all the elements are there. They, they just happened to hit, be the zeitgeist, you know, you have other bands at the time that they sound dated because there's a sound, but it, people don't care about the, you know, the lyrics being something that can relate to everyone. They don't care about the lyrics also being specific and telling a story. They don't like, they don't care as much about, you know, it's just, there's this momentum and you, know, you get a lot of bands from that time that latched on, you know, and then the Sergeant Pepper, you know, when they did that, everybody latched on. But if you go in and if you look at the details of the music, it's all there. Yeah, that's something I've learned over the last 12 years doing the show is that not only are the details all well conceived, but you can constantly find revelations in those details of the songs. One thing I like asking other Beatles fans is what's your favorite Beatles album? For me, it seems to change once or twice a year. Rubber Soul from 1965, the album where they began transitioning into a more mature experimental direction is a great album. No big singles, but has all the elements from the early albums and some of the late albums. Always in my top three. The first half of the White Album for me has to be their best work. Thanks to the great Beatles documentary, Get Back. If you haven't seen it, you know, stop what you're doing right now and get someone's Disney Plus password and go watch it. But thanks to Get Back, I've been listening to Let It Be a lot in the last six months. Then doing the research on this episode, I fell in love with 1966 Revolver. Great album. 
That was the album after Rasoul. Just exceptional. But that's why I asked my guests that question too. What's your favorite Beatles album? Because they all named three, four, five. I think Joe Peppercorn ends up naming six or seven in his answer. The one I would say most often is Abbey Road. But I also really liked the Rubber Soul Revolver era. Totally. And, um, I can just put those on at any point, any songs from those, and just get into it. It's always going to be, you know, Revol- Revolver, Rubber Soul. Yeah, Rubber Soul's usually my favorite. Uh, Sergeant Pepper sometimes. I'm like, Abbey Road. And all those. But then Hard Day's Night is just such a, like, killer just everything's kind of it's just straight to the point yeah, and every nice. song sounds like a hit those would those would be you know abbey road white album pepper and making allowance for an american accent the screams might have been genuine merseyside george john paul and ringo had found a new world to conquer did you understand you to that? get a haircut at all no no nope. no, no, no thanks. i had one yesterday <laughs> That's no lie. Crowds had waited outside to cheer them all the way to the hotel. No arguing about it. The Beatles are the top pop music phenomenon of the century. Beatles returned to the U.S. in the summer of 1964. They've got two dates out of their 30 or so shows planned for the Buckeye State. One night after they play Red Rocks outside Denver, yes, the Beatles did play Red Rocks, they were set to perform to a sold-out crowd at Cincinnati Gardens. That's the arena that was north of downtown Cincinnati been torn down since then, but our final guest is author, journalist, and historian at the Cincinnati's newspaper, the Cincinnati Inquirer. Jeff Cease joined us, and we talked with Jeff about the Beatles' first visit to Ohio, as thousands of fans wait at the airport to welcome the Beatles to Cincy. Kind of unknown where they would appear. You know, they weren't broadcasting, they're going to be at this airport at two o'clock. And so people had to kind of guess. And the, the good Info was it was probably Lunkin Airport. And that's generally where, like, Kennedy, when he came to visit, presidents generally landed there. It's a little more of a private, smaller airport. But they pretty much had to camp out. A news report said about 5,000 people were there, which wow. doesn't sound like, you know, it's not a stadium, but that's a lot of people to, like, show up at an airport. <laughs> and when they came down, we've got photos of them walking down the... You know, the steps of the plane, you know, being at the Inquirer, uh, one of the Inquirer reporters at, was talking to them and they asked, you know, where are you from? And they said the Inquirer and a reporter the Paul McCartney said, uh, oh, I've heard that's the best one. Prepping for this show, I, I watched a lot of this 1964 tour. Every stop, they had a press conference in basically every city. The questions were what I would call lightweight. Why are you called the Beatles? When is this fad going to end? That was a big thing. The Beatlemania is never going to last. Why don't you guys get haircuts? Why do the girls go so crazy? The press was certain that they would fall as fast as they rose to stardom. Had Jeff been at that Cincy press conference in August 1964, I asked him what he would have asked. And he said he would have looked into something about Cincinnati's own King Records. King Records was the label that gave James Brown his start. And the Beatles had covered a song by Little Willie John, a King Records artist as well. Yeah, well, I think the journalistic standards for them at that point was that that most of the media was not treating them very seriously. Yeah. Like, you know, it's who are these guys who are coming around here and upsetting our American youth? And and so there was some disdain, but they won over the media with their wit and their good answers, you know, joking about, oh, I had a haircut just yesterday. I don't need one. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, very witty Marx Brothers like uh, and all four of them, you know, it was um, they really handled the media so well. So part of me went says, you know, yeah, I'd I'd try to ask a question to get a smart response from one of the Beatles. You know, that'd be the highlight, right? Um, but I think 
it'd be interesting to kind of see what they were interested in. You know, um, maybe that's a little bit of retrospect looking back at it, but you know, they were very much into the American music scene. And that's, in fact, there's so much of the, especially the R and B acts and stuff that they kind of reintroduced into America. Um, and it would be kind of interesting to ask them about, you know, who they wanted to meet or who they wanted to see or hear. Um, I know when Paul McCartney was in Cincinnati a few years ago, he made a point um, of connecting at the old King Records site. Um, and there was a one of the King Records, um, was it uh, Wee Willie John, I think, who um, did a um, Leave My Kitten Alone that they recorded but didn't put on an album. So it would have been kind of interesting if maybe, because King was still around then and those other performers. So it might yeah. have been interesting to ask them about, you know, American music or what in America they'd be interested in experiencing. The Beatles played Cincinnati Gardens on August 27, 1964, and it was a wild scene. There was very little audio from that show that we would deem usable that wasn't just girls screaming to share on the podcast. We'll have some audio from some of the other Ohio shows later in the episode, but we talked with Jeff Cease from the Cincinnati Inquirer about the Beatles' first show in Ohio. It was a crazy show, but it did manage to stay on the rails. I think it's exuberant, but at that point, things were a little frenetic. You know, you had folks screaming the entire time. That was how what concerts, you know, Beatles concerts were like. Um, so you couldn't really hear anything from, from the reports and watching the videos of it. Um, but I wouldn't say it was, you know, you may get one or two people that the police kind of had to escort out and pick up. And that, yes, that's bad, but it's not like riots were you know they kind of characterize a bit as riots but i think it was just really really enthusiastic people and particularly since it was um you know young women and girls you didn't quite know how to handle it it's not like you just send the cops and bust up the <laughs> crackheads mob. yeah yeah it's not the, it's not a mob it's it's just really excited fans Our guest Janice Mitchell had a plan. Janice came from a broken home in Cleveland. Her excellent book, My Ticket to Ride, she lays out one of the great stories I've heard. It's about how she and her friend Marty, both 16 years old, decide to run away to London to go find the Beatles. That's the plan. The book, there's a link to buy it in the show notes. It's a great read and available on Audible as well. came out last year in 2021. It tells the story of Beatlemania through the eyes of a teenager who took things too far. But I've got a soft spot for her story. As a teen, I, I snuck out of the house, jumped in a minivan, and went to Woodstock 99, leaving my parents a well-written, uh, and now looking back on it, hilarious note. Uh, they've kept the note, actually. I, I should have grabbed it for this episode, but it, I know it begins, Dear Loving Parents, you've done a great job raising me, blah, blah, blah. We stole Jesse's mom's car, and we're halfway to Woodstock. Please don't call the police. So I'm right there with you, Janice. We asked her how this plan to go to London and find the Beatles, how it began. We were in her bedroom, and I'm reading a magazine, and it said the Beatles could hang out in clubs in Soho in London, and nobody bothered them. And I read that, and I couldn't believe they put it in a magazine that everybody could read. I said, Marty, look at this. Look at this. Now we know where they go, and now that's where we have to go. We have to go to Soho. That was the beginning of the plan. She agreed, and she said, well... I have my college fund, and I, I never wanted to go to college. We can use that. Great. Now we're ready. We're all, all we have to do is do the planning. 
that was me. Do the planning. How do we get passports? Go down to the downtown branch of the library for this really important quest of how to get a passport. A lot of people ask, well, how did you get a passport at that age? 16 and over, you can get your own passport in the United States. You don't need any any adult consent whatsoever. Janice Mitchell and her friend Marty are, are working on their plan to blow off Cleveland, blow off high school, and run away to England. But there's something they need to stick around for, and that is to go to the Beatles concert at Public Hall on September 15, 1964, in downtown Cleveland. Janice and Marty were picked in the ticket lottery. They took out Marty's college phone and bought two flights to London and two front row centers tickets to see the Beatles live in the land. We're waiting to find out if we won the lottery. I got a letter and I said, that's it. We're going to buy our one-way tickets, PWA, the day after the concert. That's all we need to stick around here for. And then we're out of here. After she withdrew the money, we went right over to PWA counter on Euclid Avenue. So we bought our two one-way tickets because we were never coming back because it was going to be forever over there in Beetleland. And so, and I had been taking my clothes over to Marty's house because there was nobody home during the day, putting them in suitcases and stashing them under her bed. The day had finally arrived. September 15th, 1964, the Beatles were playing to a sold-out public hall, still downtown. We talked about that venue before in our presidential season in 2020 during the conventions episode. It's where they had the 36th Republican convention. But it's still right there on the mall by the lake. Now it's where the convention center is located. It's called Cleveland Cleveland Public Auditorium now. If you look at our cover for this episode, it's a photo of the Beatles before the show. They're doing a quick photo shoot in the waves of Lake Erie in downtown Cleveland. It's a really fun shot. I'd never seen that one before. But if your phone doesn't show the cover, you can find it on Evergreen Podcasts. Most of the podcast websites have it, or or our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We put all those covers on there. But there was our guest, Janice Hawkins, her maiden name. At the time, ready to rock out to the Beatles. We'll play a few live sounds from inside the hall. And what would become a theme at Beatles shows in Cleveland, a riot broke out, as they tend to do up in Cleveland. We'll also hear from Dave Schwenson, the author of Beatles in Cleveland. There's a link to buy that book as well in our show notes. There I was, you know, like 10 feet from the stage, and there they were themselves, you know, all four of them. And just so gorgeous and so wonderful. And I know all the words to the songs anyway, but the crazy thing that happened was when mostly girls just went bananas and just rushed down the aisles trying to clamber up onto the stage. I mean, how dangerous was that? I was terrified myself and angry because look who would, what I had gone through to get these tickets. And now these girls want to ruin, ruin the show. The police threatening the show is not going to go on. The show is over. It was very emotional. You know, they're rushed off the stage and they didn't even want to go, but they did. And so they were pushing their way to get up on stage and were pushing up there. And, uh, you know, the police, in defense of them, the police, they thought someone was getting hurt. But they ran up, they thought it was out of control, and they stopped the concert. And they uh, pushed the Beatles. They went up with John Lennon and George Harrison and pushed them away from the microphone. Paul McCartney, he said they had been told that the concert was over. They were stopping the concert. And they were leaving. They were pretty much heading out the back door of Public Hall when somebody stopped them and said they were going back on. They turned around, and, and uh, Martin and Howard were on stage. 
calming down the kids. And then the curtain went up and the Beatles came back out again and they finished their show. Everything calmed down like Harry Martin and Spex Howard came out and addressed the crowd. This is how they kind of took over from KYW, but the show was promoted by WHK. WHK had kind of stolen the show away. But Harry Martin and Spex Howard, they took command again by getting on the stage, you know, and Spex Howard was saying, well, listen, we're going to play three Beatles songs in a row on Monday, but you have to calm down. And Spex said, I'm going to count it from three to one. By the time we get to one, everybody should be in their seat. And that really worked. And then they went on and they just continued with um, the song they had been interrupted. They, they did 12 songs and that was standard. The Beatles concert at Public Hall, Cleveland was so different. I mean, not only did it happen once, it happened twice. The concerts were stopped. Uh, Mommy and Daddy, you know, they had no interest in seeing the Beatles. That was long hair, rock and roll. That was bad influence stuff. However, they didn't feel that bad about dropping their kids off to watch. And then after the concert, they come back and pick up the kids. So there was not that much parental supervision going on in Public Hall that night. And it was sold out. It was packed. Even the police... Because, you know, the Beatles didn't travel with their own security force. That's They didn't do that back in those days. So WHK Radio had to hire, like, off-duty cops to protect the Beatles. Or basically, babysit the kids is how they thought about it. It was a babysitting duty. But the police couldn't understand why these four long-hair, college-age kids, that's all the Beatles were, why they were getting more security than JFK got when he came to Cleveland. So basically, when the Beatles came out on the stage, at first, the police turned around to see what was the big deal. What's the big deal with these four guys? And they didn't see everything that was happening behind them. And the kids were all of a sudden jumping up on their chairs and they're running down the aisles. They're running down, you know, public hall from the mezzanine and they're running down. They're all trying to, as Jerry G, the, the well-known DJ, uh, said about that concert in Cleveland. He said other other cities, people just wanted to see the Beatles and scream. In Cleveland, they always wanted to touch one True to their word, after the concert, Janice and Marty flew to England. That journey and those weeks in foggy old London town are the bulk of the book, and we won't go into too much detail because you need to buy it, but they had a blast, let's just put it that way. At the same time, it became a local story. Two teens run away to find the Beatles. Then a national story. Ohio teens run away to London uh, as this dangerous Beatle mania sweeps the, sweeps the country. Then even an international story in England as a low-key manhunt is underway for them with Scotland Yard. Janice Hawkins has reached her beloved Beatleland and had no idea that everyone was looking for them. Had no idea. I mean, the little studio, the little flat that we rented, it was adorable, but it did not come with a TV or a radio. And plus, we didn't care about TV because in those days, TV was basically extremely boring anyway. Yeah. And we didn't have a radio and we couldn't be bothered reading newspapers. We didn't care about that kind of stuff because now here we are where we want to be living the life in Soho, you know, going to listen to live music almost every night, hanging out with other kids our age, you know, who were actually more mature than we were. They lived a different life. I just fit right in. I was just absorbed into everything about it. So I didn't care about any of that stuff. The Beatles' first tour in the United States came right in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement. The year of the Civil Rights Act, Freedom Summer in Mississippi, LBJ's War on Poverty, things were happening. But those government and private acts were not making a real difference down in the South. 
The Beatles are scheduled to play Jacksonville, Florida, when a reporter mentions the big show at the Gator Bowl is likely to be played to a segregated audience. John, Paul, Ringo, and George hadn't thought about that. They immediately take a stand and threaten to cancel the show unless it's played to an integrated audience, like everywhere else in the friggin' world. We hear from Paul McCartney in the days leading up to the show and from our guest Dave Schwenson about how the Beatles, for one night anyways, desegregated the South. Well, you're going to play Jacksonville, Florida. Do you anticipate any kind of well, difference in that opinion? I don't know, really. You know, it'd be a bit silly to segregate people because, you know, I mean, I just think it's stupid, you know. Yeah. You can't treat other human beings like animals. That's, that's the way we all feel. You know. That's the way we all feel. And a lot of people in England feel that way, you know, because there's never any segregation in concerts in England. And in fact, if there was, we wouldn't play them, you know. They did look at America as the Wild West. I mean, you think about this. They didn't know what they, they were excited because America was where everything was. But at the same time, they were quite aware of what happened to, to JFK in Dallas. And when they went to uh, San Francisco that year, 1964, for their concert, they did an open car ticker tape parade. And they, in the back of their minds, they're thinking, who's got a gun? Who's going to do this? I mean, George Harrison in particular did not want to do this. But they also felt the same way about the, the music because uh, the black music, you know, I mean, rhythm and blues, rock and roll. I mean, trace it back. It's, that's where it started. And Beatles were big fans, you know, the way that they were brought up and in England and just things I think are different there. There was no difference between it being a black musician or a white musician. Just what do you play? How did you play that chord? You know, we love that song. That's great. So when they got to America and they learned how things were in those days with segregated audiences, they were horrified. They'd never experienced that before anywhere in the world, only in the U.S., yeah. So they they refused. They made a stand. They are not going to perform in front of segregated audience. Those guys in the deep south must have just been out of their minds. <laughs> Guess what? Guess who controls it? The person who sells it's show business, baby. Who who sells the tickets? They make the rules. As we enter 1965, the Beatles are now international movie stars thanks to Hard Day's Night and Help, the movie and the album came out. The huge hits in 1965. Help has great songs like Ticket to Ride, Yesterday, You Gotta Hide Your Love Away. The song Help, the album opener, is a classic. They're only playing 10 cities, and their first show is the biggest Beatles show of all time. August 15, 1965, just a couple of months before Rubber Soul is released, they're playing the iconic show at the new Shea Stadium in Queens. Their only New York show. Really, their only East Coast show in 65. Our guest Dave Schwenson has written the great book, The Beatles at Shea Stadium. Link in the show notes to buy that, and we'll post it on our Instagram and Facebook page as well. Dave talks to us about their triumphant show in the Big Apple and the difficulty of playing giant rock shows, stadium rock shows, before modern concert speakers and amps were readily available to play to this size of an audience. Yeah, the big thing about Shea Stadium, uh, 55,600 people. And I do say this is their greatest concert. It was the height of Beatlemania. It was in the media capital of the world, New York City. It was being filmed for a television special produced by Ed Sullivan. I mean, he was the biggest name in television at that time. And the deal is, I mean, the first stadium, early stadium rock and roll concerts, Elvis did about five or six before he went in the army. The biggest one Elvis ever did was 23,000 people at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Uh, the Beatles had to more than double that, 55,600 at Shea Stadium. And they did it. They sold it out. But check this out. There was no advertising. It was just word of mouth. There was no advertising. That's why even I say in that book, people have, I, I know they've been scammed out there saying, oh, you can get a poster of the Beatles, 1965, Shea Stadium concerts, collector's <laughs> item. Well, collector's item, no, because they make them, they're fake. I think I'm gonna 
Dave talks about the phenomenon of Beatlemania, where some say they went to the shows but couldn't hear the Beatles over the crowds and the screams. I think Dave debunks that a little bit through interviews and his own personal experience of seeing the Beatles. That set list they open with Twist and Shout, She's a Woman, Help, Can't Buy Me Love. That's a classic. Dave talks about hearing the Beatles live during their touring years. You know, I saw the Beatles. I saw the Beatles in concert. I heard them and they sounded great. The girls, when I speak with them, they always say they couldn't hear them. Oh, they couldn't hear him. They could see him and everything. A lot of the guys could hear them because the girls were screaming. But like, for instance, I heard them and they were great. And the guy, the, the people I interviewed at Shea Stadium said the same thing, except for the people in the upper deck, the third deck, way up there in Shea Stadium. They said they couldn't hear anything. And they looked like little ants. If they didn't have binoculars, they would have never known what was going on. But the ones who had, you know, decency, lower decks, middle deck, mezzanine, they heard them and they sounded, you know, they, they sounded great. They really did. They were a good band. Everyone tells me that. The people that worked with them, uh, they were just a tight band. And by the time they were touring over here, a lot of the songs they performed were, I was called like the Chuck Berry three-chord rock and roll, easy stuff. They could play that in their sleep, standing on their heads. So even if they couldn't hear themselves, you know, you, you watch like the Shea Stadium in the beginning, you know, they're giving each other signals, they're looking, they know where they're going. They don't have to hear what they're playing. They played it a thousand times. They could not even hear, the, the Beatles could never hear their own vocals. That's what I found was interesting. They could hear their guitars because the amplifiers were right behind. Them. They heard that. Ringo Starr always said he just played to how their feet were tapping, their heads were bobbing and their butts were shaking. That's what he was playing too. But they didn't have uh, the vocal monitors like they have now. So the vocals were coming out of speakers along the first and third base lines of these stadium shows, and the Beatles couldn't hear themselves. So they were just doing it by instinct. One of our guests today is Joe Peppercorn, Beatles aficionado, the man behind Sergeant Peppercorn's Marathon, the annual concert in Columbus where Joe and his wonderful band, special guests, string quartets, horns, and background singers, you name it, they play every single Beatles song in chronological order. It's believed to be the only one in the world. This year, they'll be added again at the Columbus Anthenaeum downtown. Looks like it's going to be Friday, December 30th. Dubbed by some, myself included, as Columbus's greatest annual cultural event. But it started out on more humble roots, following the death of Columbus music icon John Andy Mann Davis. Andy Mann was a DJ, program manager at one of the last great independent rock stations in the country, CD 92.9. It's owned by our friend, former podcast guest Randy Malloy. But Joe knew Andy Mann. And it was the two of them playing Beatles songs before his untimely death in 2010. How did the marathon get started? I mean, it did the first one was at Andy Man's, right? Yeah. Um, the, I didn't see that one. I saw the second one, but not the first one. Very few people probably saw the first one. There were like 50 or 60 people. I think there's like oh. 500 people now that claim they were there. Sure, sure. Uh, it was uh, the so Andy Man had died that summer and he was um, a friend of mine. And he was a big Beatles fan. So he and I had had many conversations. You know, I worked for him. I used to run the door there. Yeah. And that was my first bar gig. Um, and so he and I used to have lots of nights where we would talk about Abbey Road or whatever. And then one night, you know, we, we even played like there was a piano and I played through the whole thing and he sang through like I didn't know the whole album, but he like made me I didn't even have a cell phone back then. This was like 2005. But he like made me try and figure out close to the chords. He's like, we're getting through this. And um, he passed away that year. My son was just born, turned 30. And it was just for me, it was a very emotional time. I wanted to perform the White Album all on my own at the Treehouse, which I had done before. And then I realized that I knew probably 50 other Beatles songs off the top of my head. 
And I started to do the math on everything. And you're already at about 80 right there. Yeah, I'm, I'm at 80. <laughs> and then the iPad was just invented. So I was like, okay, if I upload all the lyrics and everything, there's an easy, like, I won't have this binder that I can't see because the bar is dark. Yeah. And so like, there's just this confluence of things. Like, it's weird because the iPad really might've been what made it initially possible. Yeah, I can see um, that. We relied on them for, you know, three or four years. No more iPads. <laughs> Let's just memorize this stuff. If people are going to get into this, we got to get into it to the point where we we're not looking at our iPads anymore. It's a marathon. Um, hey, Amy, I got your letter. Thanks very much. And um, hey, band. Okay, guys. Um, I think it's a great idea. I wish you good luck and good stamina. The, the marathon is about to begin, and I'm about to kick you off with our first recording. And then you've got to carry on forever and ever and ever. This show is a 13-hour rock masterpiece. It's a marathon. I don't know how Joe does it. I certainly don't know how he used to do it when it was mostly just him and, and a few other band members on a couple albums. So, sure, it's different now, but it looks like it takes even more energy when he's on stage with you know, 10, 11 other people. I'm imploring you to come see this for yourself on, on December 30th. If you like the Beatles, go to peppercornmarathon.com. We talk with Joe Peppercorn about the endurance needed to play a Beatles marathon. How were you going to the bathroom? What, what what were you doing? I don't remember you leaving the stage. I mean, I was sweating so much. I don't, I don't think I, I didn't <laughs> have to go. I do have to go to the bathroom now. I have played the show without leaving the stage. I think I did that twice, but that wasn't on purpose. I just happened to not leave. Now it's like, especially since there's so many people and I'm, I, it's a different feeling when you're playing. So it's takes a lot more adrenaline. I didn't think it would be possible to do it at the scale we do it because I thought that the the only way it'd be possible is if we were mostly, you know, stagnant, not moving so much. Then I was like, as I was getting older and I was just like, well, let's just see how far we can go. And I, I've actually gotten in better shape since I was 30. Like I, I've run a lot more. I ran a couple of marathons. Yeah, that's right. And, and, um, I see, and you I, around, I see you around Grandview jogging. Yeah. I, you know, and especially around the show, I have to be, I have to be in pretty decent shape. Otherwise yeah. there was one year I wasn't, and it was bad, but, um, <laughs> you know, I try to drink less heading to the, into the show and I try to exercise, eat well and all that, because it's, it's really necessary. It really hurts a lot. It hurts a lot. Like yeah. when I first started the show, I thought like that was the appeal was that we're doing the stupid human trick. And then it was like, Oh, the appeal is actually the music and we should make the music as beautiful as possible. And not and and now I try to downplay the physical aspect of it. You know, it's there. Like everybody knows that it's crazy and everything. I think, I think I th- it. I know, it, but I feel like it, the music's so good that it's getting lost in the in the shuffle. The you know <laughs> the the physical endurance that this thirteen hour show takes. Well, I know, but, but people at the show, like, yeah, because when people talk to me, they're like, "Oh, it's like a stupid human trick." But I want people at the show to feel like this is like like when when we're playing whatever song we're playing. You know, when, when I look out and I see like people just going like this, I'm like, okay, we're doing it right. You know, I don't want people to be like, 
oh, like, look at these goofballs doing every, like, I want it to be a very transcendent and emotional experience for myself and everyone there. And I think that's not possible if I'm constantly like, look at us. We're, we've been playing for 12 hours, we're eight about, hours in. Yeah. Look at us. Look at me. I want them to be able to get whatever they're looking for out of it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the fall of 1964, a British Bobby sees Janice walking down the streets of London and recognizes her from the posters in the manhunt and takes her back to the police station. The jig is up. Like I said, there's a link in the show notes. But there's even an article she's shown that says the Beatles were looking for her. Paul McCartney is said to have wanted to meet them. He's still in the States, but the embassy was under strict orders to get them back to Ohio and to not encourage her delinquency. Her dream of meeting a Beatle and the one she liked best was denied. He said, didn't you know that everybody was looking for you? I said, no. He said, kind of said, like, well, how could you not know? So I told him the same thing, you know. And he said, well look at this. And he brings out some newspaper stories and he just puts them on the table. And I see, he said, even the Beatles were looking for you, you know, and that, and that was like, what you mean? I'm looking for them and they're looking for me. I can't believe it. So that was when I first learned. After a person falls out of the rafters, a teen girl at a public hall at a Rolling Stone concert, a few months later, the near riot at the Beatles concert, Marty and Janice running away, Rock and roll is blamed for a lot of problems by Cleveland Mayor Ralph Loker. He bans rock and roll concerts from public venues. Surely some of Janice's peers blamed her, her antics, for this ban, as it got her a lot of attention, and the city a lot of negative attention. Mayor Loker, you know, announced that this type of music, you know, didn't serve the culture of of Cleveland or the public good, and he banned Beatlemania. He banned rock and roll you know, from public uh, facilities in Cleveland. Well, that weighed heavily on my shoulders at that time. Yeah. That was another contributing factor to me not wanting to talk anymore because not only did I disappoint all these other people, but now look what I did here. But Cleveland's the home of rock and roll. So clearly rock and roll wasn't banned forever. And as we move into 1966, the Beatles were asking Cleveland to lift the ban to be part of the 1966 U.S. tour what would end up being the Beatles' final concert tour, and we'll discuss in detail why that was. But Cleveland, probably due to the ban, wasn't on the original tour dates. Our guest Dave Schwenson, author of Beatles in Cleveland, discusses how the Beatles helped to institute and then ultimately lift the ban on rock and roll in Cleveland. They'd been booked in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, of course, they didn't play there. They went up playing in Cleveland. And I called, I talked to the promoter when I wrote the book in Louisville. I said, what happened? You had the Beatles. He goes, we had no place big enough to put 55,000, 60,000 fans. He said the racetrack was booked. The state fair was going on. We had nothing. We had to give up the date. So when they gave up that date, the Beatles booking agency, GAC in New York, were like, well, what are we going to do? You know, we got we got a, a date here. We got to fill it. And they wound up calling the guys from Cleveland, Norman Wayne and Joe Zangali. And they had started their radio station, Wixie 1260. Anyway, they went down to, down to City Hall and they talked to Mayor Ralph Loker, who had brought on the Beatles band. And it's pretty much saying that, uh, you know, if you want to be considered a big city on the map, 
It's like having a major league baseball team. It's like having a major an NFL team. You've got to let the Beatles come in. This is a big deal. They were movie stars, not just pop stars. They were movie stars. They were worldwide phenomena. So they made a deal that they could rent the old Cleveland Stadium, put the Beatles in the middle of it, don't let any fans on the field. If they could promise that, they would let they would lift the ban and bring in the Beatles. Before they got to America and their ill-fated 1966 tour, they had a rough stretch in Asia the month before uh, coming to the States. Their transformative album Revolver came out that summer and began to show the direction in experimental sounds and big orchestral arrangements and psychedelia. The Beatles themselves started getting into marijuana in 64, 65, but they had expanded into psychedelics by 1966. Like the rest of the hippies, they were turning on, tuning in, dropping out, just as Timothy Leary used to say. But their shows were giant happenings across the world, and they were security nightmares. They played five shows in Tokyo at the historic Budokan Hall. Japanese traditionalists, they protested the shows. Budokan literally means martial arts, uh, martial arts hall, and, and these were the first rock concerts at this hollowed ground. But it got even worse a week later in the Philippines when the Beatles and their crew were assaulted and really run out of the country. We talked with Dave about the beginnings of the end, the final tour of the Beatles. Started in Tokyo with performing at the Budokan. I mean, again, Budokan's real famous in rock and roll history now. Cheap Trick, Live at the Budokan, all the rock acts play. But in 1966, no, it was a martial arts and they were not happy. And they were, there were death threats and bonfires and protests. And the Beatles were held captive in their hotel suite. They couldn't go out. It was too dangerous. Then they flew to the Philippines and they insulted the first family, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. Imelda Marcos, the first lady of the Philippines with all that makeup crying down. And they had her on television for the news. Her kids are there. Their rich friends supposed to meet the Beatles were four empty chairs where the Beatles stood up the first family. And the uh, first thing they noticed was their, well, they saw it on television from the hotel suites, but they noticed their security had been taken away. So again, have the fans could get in to get them, but also angry people could get in and they had to get out of there. There were only nine people in their touring party. It's four yeah. Beatles, manager, his assistant, two roadies and a publicist. They had all their suitcases, stage clothes, guitars, amplifiers, drums, everything. They had to drag out of the hotel. Then their transportation had been taken away. Uh, the, the people of the Philippines wanted to take back their money. Basically, what they got paid for the concert, they took it back. And then they let them go. And then they had to come to the United States, where we're more popular than Jesus had just come out in the magazines. <laughs> I was pointed out that fact in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down, I was just saying it as a fact. And it sort of, it is true, especially more for England than here. You know, you I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said, and it was wrong, or was taken wrong, and now it's all this. If it had said television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it. <laughs> As I just happened to be talking to a friend, I just said they are having more, in, more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. But I said it in that way, which is the wrong way. Well, first of all, if you read the interview, uh, it was with Maureen Cleave, the London Times. And she did an interview with all four Beatles and their manager, Brian Epstein, to run right. five. And Lennon, John Lennon was the first one. And maybe he wasn't in a good mood that day. He said a lot of other stuff he should have said. 
But, you know, the point of what he said was, especially the teenagers in England, it seemed they would rather go to a Beatles concert than go to church. So therefore, the Beatles must be more popular than Jesus. In England, it really didn't cause a big deal. He was a loudmouth rock star. Nobody paid attention to him, but they put it over here in Datebook Magazine. And that, that Datebook Magazine article was all edited, too. It had all five interviews crammed in there together. The Bible Belt, especially the South. But even in Cleveland, there was a, um, a minister in Cleveland who forbid his congregation, anyone, to go to that Cleveland concert. They were a burning Beatles paraphernalia, you know, pictures, albums. The Ku Klux, the Ku Klux Klan, were, they were nailing Beatles albums to crosses and burning them. I mean, come on. He said when they got that concert, they were planning 50 to 60,000 fans in Cleveland Stadium. But he said once that article came out, once that quote came out, ticket sales stopped. And he told me that um, they announced 26,000 fans at the concert, but he said they didn't have 20,000 there. And they kind of made had everyone move to the center of the stadium facing the stage. So it looked like there was a bigger crowd. But yeah, it really did hurt things. And it was very scary to be one of the Beatles. This is the Leighton and Charles Show on Wacky Radio, broadcasting at 1220 on your dial until about 9 o'clock this morning. And we'd like to urge you to take your Beatle records and your Beatle mania to any one of our 14 pickup points anywhere in Birmingham, Alabama. And don't forget those destruction, the destruction of those Beatle records will take place in just a few days and we'll keep you informed on all of that. It's that's kind of a funny thing what he said, like. I, did, I think he meant to be like funny. I'm not sure he wanted to be revered that much and yeah. to have people finding so much meaning in all these goofy songs he's writing. I mean, you could pick that thing apart for a long time. It yeah. could be a criticism of the church too. I don't know. I think it's kind of funny what he said. And, and I, I grew up in a pretty religious household and I think people tend to lose their sense of humor as they get like more and more and more and more into religion, I think you can always have a healthy balance of things. Like I'm an organist at a Catholic church. I'm around, like, like there's cool people in, in the church and they like, I have fun with the choir that I direct. They feel threatened because the Beatles are taking up a lot of uh, airspace. I don't know if they think instead of listening to music, you listen to like Archbishop Sheehan ta- like berating you. John Lennon's We Are Bigger Than Jesus comments caused a serious backlash in the South and the Bible Belt and even in the industrial Midwest. The Beatles were booked to play Cincinnati and Cleveland again in the summer of 66. Cincinnati was always a very conservative city in the 20th century. Only recently did it become a Democratic stronghold. I mean, Bob Dole beat Bill Clinton in Hamilton County by seven points in 1996. Go back 20 years, Ford clobbers Carter by 21% in an election he lost. By 2020, Biden would take Hamilton County by 16%. And a lot has changed in Cincinnati. But John Lennon's comments did not play well in the Queen City. We bring back Jeff Cease from the Cincinnati Inquirer to discuss the effect of being bigger than Jesus in Cincinnati. Frankly, most people didn't quite understand the quote. You know, they were kind of knee-jerk reaction. But, you know, that's pretty typical of today's reactions and social media and, and things so that, you know, taken out of context. And so you have people who were writing in to defend the Beatles and you had people writing in to defend Jesus and Christianity. And, you know, there was even a column from Norman Vincent Peale that we ran near the Enquirer. This isn't going to affect Jesus because he's bigger. And, you know, that's it. there was this, re- it got people stirred up. It was the show before Cincinnati in Memphis that they got real nervous um, and someone threw a cherry bomb 
mob onto the stage in the middle of it, and they all thought one of them just got shot. <laughs> and so they're, they're getting on edge by this, too. It was a little scary. It did affect the ticket sales. Crosley Field could have as many as like 30,000 seats, and it had about ten to 15,000 people show up. The Enquirer had an interview with the Beatles. Uh, Ringo, I think, said something like, you know, the kids didn't care about the comments. They understood and supported the Beatles, but it was the parents who were buying tickets. The Beatles did sell a lot of tickets for their show at Crossley Field, the home of the Cincinnati Reds, in the summer of 66. But the show wouldn't go off that night. I mean, it wasn't because of violence or protest, but as some conservatives in Cincinnati saw it, a higher power was at work. They had done a couple of the um, opening acts, and then rains came, and it rained for like two hours straight. And the problem was is that this is at Crosley Field, right? so it's a baseball stadium, baseball field, and the stage is out about second second base. So there's there's some distance from the, the fans, but the stage is sitting out there, and nobody put up a canopy or anything. And so it's just raining on it. And then they're getting ready to do the Beatles show, and they're like, we've got all these electric... <laughs> got to plug in our amps and their guitars and we're going to get electrocuted and so for safety's sake they said we can't do the show and um they announced it at about 10 o'clock at night or 10 30 at night that the the show had been canceled and everyone got you know real upset and backstage reportedly it was john lennon who stepped up and said we'll go ahead and do it again tomorrow and so they they spent the night at the uh, vernon manor in cincinnati in the mount in Mount Auburn, which is a kind of a nice hotel at that time. And reportedly, like, the hotel was, like, mobbed <laughs> by fans and stuff. And later, like, the linens where they slept in were torn up and sold in pieces to fans. Um, and so that was the only time they'd ever canceled a show. And so they did it two shows the next day, or noon in Cincinnati, and then they went to St. Louis for a night show. The Beatles came back to play a Sunday noon show in the Queen City. There's footage, we'll share some photos of these Ohio shows on our social networks, and it's a noticeably small crowd. But Lennon's comments only played a partial role in that. Many had stormed off after the cancellation, either didn't know it was rebooked or couldn't make it, or as Jeff tells us, you know, only about 15,000 tops show up. But because many had lost their tickets in a rage the night before. Part of that was some people got upset and threw their tickets away. They don't have tickets the next day. And so, you know, they were there, but you had to bring in that ticket again. Interestingly enough, though, they did do Yesterday, which is another one that would be difficult because it's like all those strings, but they actually did a band version of Yesterday, um, which you pretty much only hear on like bootlegs and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then it's it's not a Saturday night show. It's a Sunday noon show. And it's just, this is still the days when everything was closed on Sundays and everyone's at church. And so a noon Sunday is not really prime time for going to a rock concert. The numbers I've heard are between 10 and 15,000 who are there. Beatles made their second and final appearance in Cleveland at Municipal Stadium on the lake in mid-August 1966. The Towntown Stadium, which was torn down following the Browns leaving Cleveland in the 90s, was the home then of the Indians and the Browns. This will be the second time in four episodes of Ohio v. The World that we're talking about a riot at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. That giant cavernous mausoleum saw some some crazy stuff. Go back and listen to our season finale last year, Ten Cent Beer Night in Oral History. It's one of our most listened to episodes and one of the best episodes we've ever put together about a night in 1974 where the Indians decided to sell beer for 10 cents. 
the results were somewhat predictable and tragic. But here we are again, back at the Muni, ready for a riot. Dave Schwentz and our guest was there as a teenager, and he'll relive the moments and we'll hear some of the sights and sounds of that crazy night in Cleveland. It's August 14th, 1966, and uh, of course I was a big Beatles fan. We all were. All my friends were. I mean, when it was announced they were coming here, and I'm always surprised at this, because when I do my programs, I ask people for their memories, you know, about the Beatles, and I get a lot of them, especially the girls will stand up. They might even start crying still. You know, they're baby boys. They're 60s, 70s, because mom and dad would not allow them to go, because they didn't like that kind of music. Tickets were too expensive. I was fortunate. My mom and dad never, ever ever told me to turn down my stereo. So when it was announced the Beatles would tour, I went, I said, I didn't have to beg too much. We had the best seats. I'm telling you right now, it was $5 and 50 cents a ticket, which was a lot of money in 1966. It was a Sunday night and they took the three of my mom and dad took the three of us. And so we're in the upper deck and we could look right down. Their Beatles were on second base. So we could look right down on them. And plus we knew enough to bring binoculars because we heard, you know, I mean, we Cleveland Stadium was too big. You couldn't see anywhere. Not yet. Not yet. All the way in the back, if you will, kind of restrain yourself. If the people in front, if you keep your seats, they're going to keep their seats. It's as simple as that. So actually, the people right in here, it's pretty important for you to kind of, you know, kind of get with it. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you through KILT, the Beatles! The Beatles! And so when the the riot happened and everything, it all unfolded right underneath, right below us. I mean, I could, my cousin, George Harrison was singing a song called If I Needed Someone. My cousin Johnny said, oh my gosh, they got George. And I'm like, what? I took all my binoculars. I looked down and they were climbing over the railings, running out in the field. And we just, it was just like a scene out of a hard day's night. That's what's so amazing about Cleveland. Not only happened, I mean, it happened in Boston once, it happened some other place once, this and that. Cleveland it happened twice. Yeah, they stopped the show. When they did Shea Stadium, when they did Candlestick Park, Dodger Stadium, these big things, the kids, the fans never knew the Beatles were in this stadium until they were announced from the stage. Then they would run out of the dugouts and kids would see them and scream. In Cleveland, they brought them in through the right field gates of the stadium. They stopped the car right in front of home plate Cleveland Indians and, and they got out of the car and they waved to everyone. And then instead of going in the dugout or they went over to where the stage was on second base and there was a, a trailer, a luxury house trailer behind. And they went in there and every kid in the stadium knew they exactly where they were. So <laughs> even though the opening acts were being up there, anytime somebody peeked out the window of the trailer, something, but the adrenaline, the excitement with building, building, I think that was a big part of it. Stadium, there's been absolutely right. The crowds are going berserk and we've managed to get the Beatles in safely. And we, I'm sure the whole show is going to stop now. The police... Couldn't control them, they broke the barriers, and very luckily we managed to get the boys inside after a tremendous, tremendous riot here. Yeah, they, they opened up with rock and roll music, a Chuck Berry song. Then they played She's a Woman. Paul McCartney sang that. John sang the first song. George Harrison sang If I Needed Someone. Fourth song was Day Tripper. And the thing is, when, by the time Harrison is singing, the kids are all lining up by that railing, standing there. But they were still separate. And the only security they had, as <laughs> it kills me, and growing up in northern Ohio or anywhere in Ohio, everyone knows what a snow fence is. Wooden slats and wire holding it together. So they had a snow fence from first base to home plate, home plate to third base. Then they had some cops, some police in the middle. That was it. And so when they started playing, and this is the other thing that makes Cleveland different. Watch a film of Shea Stadium or some of these concerts. You see one or two kids run on the field. The police will tackle them. 
and they're pulling the kids off the field. John Lennon's going, oh, look at that. Oh, you know, and in Cleveland, one kid jumped over that railing. And in my book, Barry Tashian claims that he was saying with the mermaids, he, he claims it would met that one guy who did it. He jumped over the railing and 3,000 kids followed immediately. There was no stopping them. They hit the snow fence. They knocked it down. And it was a race. The police turned around to the stage. The kids are running to the stage. By the time they finished day trip, the stage is filled with police, fans, and Beatles. And they come the Beatles again for a second time to do their concert here the Stevie Cleveland Stadium. And the crowd are roaring. You can hear them. And I do hope they're able to complete their whole concert. Yes, they, they, they stopped the show. And that's when you, uh, uh, again, I, I have, you know, rare films of this. You see them running into the trailer. John and George run in first. Ringo couldn't get off the drum platform. There were too many kids. And uh, a gentleman I spoke with did some of the security. He, he was one of the ones who caught him. They had Ringo jump down. They said he was white as a ghost. Because, again, it was scary being one of the Beatles. Uh, everyone would say to me after I wrote these books, say, wouldn't it be cool to be one of the Beatles? Yeah, up until 1965, Shea Stadium, it'd be very cool. After that, no way. I mean, it was just Tokyo, the Philippines, United States. I mean, they were targets. The Cincinnati show was actually a week after Cleveland. The Beatles played five more shows after Cincinnati. Bush Stadium, St. Louis, they played Shea again. Uh, they played Seattle, then played Dodger Stadium in L.A., closed the tour in Candlestick Park in San Fran. The Beatles would never go on tour again. That was it. There's a myriad of reasons why. They toured because that's really how you made the most money before they got their later record deals. You really had to tour in those years to make real bank. Their next album was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was a much more intricate and complex album, all kinds of different sounds. And we talked with Joe Peppercorn, who still performs these tunes, about how difficult it would have been for the Beatles in 1966-67 with their limited equipment to recreate these iconic songs. I thought about this when I first started doing the show because I had limited resources when I first started the show. Um, I hadn't been playing out a lot, so I, my gear was in various states of disrepair. I was just me and a few other people, or the first year was just me. The way I approached it was, well, if they were doing a gig, how would they play this as a rock band? And so, like, you know, we would, I would do some of the keyboard sounds and things like that. But, you know, if they had done shows and played those songs, I think they would have been selective about which ones they played. And I think they would have had done stripped down, maybe more rock versions of them. As, as the show's grown bigger and I have more resources, I can do things like have a string quartet. And, right. you know, I, I have the computer software to be able to trigger loops and to be able to get the sounds emulated correctly. But now I'm actually starting to shift back as I do the show into more in a more organic sound. So instead of trying to mimic all the sounds, try to get to more convey the emotion of the of the music and and, and um, using more organic things like Strawberry Fields. I, I stopped using the Mellotron sampler and started. I have an acoustic piano at the venue, and I'm trying to just do them in a way that's less about trying to replicate the sounds and more trying to replicate the feeling that people had the first time they heard the records, if that makes sense. Yeah. What, what do you think is the toughest album for you guys when, when you do it in those later years? Once you get to Sgt. Pepper, it gets really hard. The same night, right after they played Cincinnati, they played at the brand new Bush Stadium in St. Louis, the home of my beloved St. Louis Cardinals. The Cards would go on to beat the Yankees in uh, the World Series the next year in 67. But our guest Jeff C. said it was following that show that the last holdout on touring, Paul McCartney, the one who kept the Beatles touring, he finally pulled the plug on the Beatles being a touring band. 
all the changes that are going on in their music. Um, culturally, it was very difficult uh, to do the music that they were doing live anymore. Um, in fact, the, the the album Revolver had come out just before this, and they didn't play a single song from Revolver, which is sort of <laughs> crazy when you think about it. Like they're promoting, you know, a new album, but we're not going to play anything from it. So they were getting kind of tired of it. But it was Paul who really pushed them to keep going because that's what a band did. They did concerts. You know, I think the rest of them were ready to quit at any time. It was actually that St. Louis show that same night that they were riding around in the back of like an old Brinks armored truck with no seats or anything. And they're rolling around as they turn. And they just, Paul said, like, that's it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm kind of done. You guys have all been saying this for a while now. So they kind of agreed. There's a lot of reasons they stopped playing on the road. We've covered technological limitations to playing live, stress, the fatigue of being a Beatle on tour. But I think what 1966 drove home, and sadly what would prove true 14 years later, outside the Dakota in Manhattan, was just the simple fact of their safety. Beatlemania was too big. The lads from Liverpool had a big fat target on their back. We chat with Dave Schwenson one last time about what people told him about why the Beatles became strictly a studio band. When I spoke with, like, say, Ken Mansfield, who worked for Capitol Records, he was the uh, handpicked by the Beatles themselves to be president of Apple Records in North America. And when I talked to him, he said, you know, yeah, they said that they couldn't reproduce their music on stage anymore. It was too difficult with these sophisticated, more sophisticated songs. But he said, in all honesty, they were scared. Everybody was just scared. Um, somebody's gonna take a shot or something. The Beatles, when I was a kid, they were kind of a gateway band to a whole world of rock and roll for me. And you know, now I'll go a year without listening to them, two years, but I always come back. What got me thinking about the Beatles to do this show was Peter Jackson's 2021 eight-hour super documentary, The Beatles, Get Back. Loved it. Big fan. If you haven't seen it and you're a Beatles fan or if you've ever played in a band, you need to see it. We talked to Joe Peppercorn about the new movie, which ends at the final live show. It was their first show since the U.S. tour in Cincinnati, that rooftop show on, on the top of Apple Records. But you see the seeds of their breakup, which would come just months later. If you watch them on the rooftop, that's not people who hate each other playing together. Yeah. Like, I feel like you can play professionally with people you hate, but you can't play like with that kind of joy with people you hate. The real magic of music comes from not just connecting with an audience, but connecting with the people you're playing with. And when you watch them on the roof, like th there's just no doubt that the, the, they still have love for each other, that they still have this connection you know, we, everybody needs a simple narrative. So Paul is a villain and et cetera. It became an easy way to just take this very complicated situation and make it a soundbite. Yeah. Or Yoko as you watch broke it, up the Beatles, you know, yeah, or Yoko. Yeah. And, and as you watch it, it's very complicated. You have these people that spearheaded this cultural thing that was unheard of. They wrote a bunch of great music where they invented a lot of the technology to perform show. They did all these, like this was a very complicated situation and also they're very vulnerable people. And I think watching get back that, that, that pain that both that goofiness and silliness and that pain comes through. Um, I absolutely loved it. I, I watched it in like little 20 minute snippets a lot. I don't know how it was for you, but for me, it was just so sad to watch. Cause you know, it's going to happen, you know, this is it. And there's just this, for me, there's this melon, like it's beautiful and it's miraculous that we can see it, but there's just this weight, this melancholy to it. We kind of left Janice's story unresolved. 
part of the reasons we want you to go get her book and, and find some of those details out yourself. She was treated with levity in the English papers by the authorities. Once she got back to the States, her antics were not a laughing matter. She went through the juvenile court system in Cleveland for her delinquency. Judge Gagliardo of the Cleveland Juvenile Court, he makes a big speech to the gathered press about the ill effects of rock and roll, calling it narcotics for teens. Just like that, Janice was silenced, her story not to see the light of day for 50 plus years. And he did make an example of us. You know, that was his goal, and he succeeded in that. First, there was another judge assigned to us, but then obviously Gagliardo said, no, this is mine because I have, you know, I have to get a message out because he, I learned in court that he had taken his daughter to that Beatles concert. That's right, yeah. He saw the same outrageous behavior, and I'm sure he could not, he could hardly believe what he saw and experienced there. So he wanted to make a statement, and that's why he had he had reporters in the juvenile court, which you could never get away with that sure. now. But yeah. you know, he, he I know how it works, and he called them and said, "I need you here because I have a story that I want you to cover." So anyway, we we're in court, and that was when he said that he had taken his daughter to the very same Beatles concert, and I kind of thought, "Oh wow, that's great." You know, and then he starts making his story about how we had been normal girls, even though we were from broken homes, before we started listening to this evil rock and roll music. Yep. And this is what, you know, this is the evils of rock and roll music and what it does to kids, to children, and um, how it's like a drug, you know, it will lead to riots. I mean, he wasn't really wrong later on about that stuff because that <laughs> actually he actually saw the future there. But still, he used us. And he wasn't really there to help us. He was no. just there to use us. They didn't care anything about us at all. Just let's make an example out of these two. And as we close today, thinking about Beatlemania, the rise of teenage culture in this country, and baby boomers and the soon-to-dawn counterculture that result in some of the biggest protests, I think, in this country's history. I think much worse in the late 60s, early 70s, than it was today. The Beatles are the dividing line between the greatest generation and the baby boomers. As we just talked about a judge from Cleveland reading Janice and Marty the Riot Act, we came across this monologue given by Judge Benjamin Schwartz of Cincinnati. Judge Schwartz, just like the judge in Janice's case, had attended the Beatles show and was appalled by what he saw. We'll leave you with this gem from Cincinnati juvenile court judge Ben Schwartz. Last Thursday night, the Beatles were in town with about over 14,000 children a great majority being girls. The, some of the parents were there, most of them were not. Now this court <clears throat> is not approved, and we know that each teenage group wants to produce its own music, its own dancing, its own heroes. And then these girls went into a coma. They ranted, they fainted, their eyes were glassy. Some pulled their hair out, some tore their dresses. They threw notes of a very uh, undesirable nature on the stage. It was, as some people say, unbelievable. But that show has sown certain seeds in these youngsters. And the seeds could be of a physical nature where they could be impaired with it, could be of a mental situation, girls going out on dates, uh, their misconception. Dictionary definition of a beetle is a bug. Of course, the bug also means being crazy. And I don't think the Beatles are bugs. They've done very well. They've made a fortune off of this 
whole hysteria created by the media of communication. But I think the parents are bugs to let their children go to a production like this kind, not knowing what it was like, or they did know what it was like. But if you could see how uncontrollable they were, the glassy eyes, the physical and mental condition, you would agree that the show was not good for them. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation is both of our guest books, Janice Mitchell's My Ticket to Ride from 2021, and Dave Schwenson's The Beatles in Cleveland. We got links in the show notes to both of those books. Excellent journeys into 1960s Cleveland, the Beatles, and the city that became the home of rock and roll. Both books are excellent. You can grab Janice's book on Audible as well to listen to if you'd rather. We left quite a bit of her plot out of her book of the story to hopefully encourage you to check it out. Thanks so much to both of them for joining the show. Could have literally done an entire episode with either one of them as as the only guests. I mean, they were great, really fun conversations uh, with Dave and with Janice. Special thanks to Jeff Cease from the Cincinnati Inquirer. I could see him coming back on the show in the future. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge on all things Cincy. And lastly, thanks to Joe Peppercorn. So glad he hopped on to talk Beatles and the Marathon, which is again December 30th, it looks like, at the Anthenium in downtown Columbus, an all-day, all-night affair. Go to peppercornmarathon.com. But we wanted to give you just a taste of our conversation with Joe. It was a little bit of everything Beatles. I can't wait to see Sergeant Peppercorn's Marathon again this year. Plus, he gave some pretty good insight into his problem with the way most bar bands perform Hey Jude, a classic Beatles number. It's a song about Julian Lennon, John's young son dealing with his parents' divorce when John got with Yoko Ono. And the guy makes some pretty good points. Like, Hey Jude, I think that, I used to hate that song because I just thought it was overplayed, so I never really listened to it. Mm-hmm. If you look, like, it is a sad song. Oh, yeah. And it is probably the most abused song in the history of music because if you ever see a bar band play it, it's always the worst thing because they start the song, they start the song wanting to sing na 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 na. Hey Jude, you know it's and it's like it's a really, really it, the melody is like that's really sad, and the and the way he goes to the seven there on the chord to give like this like we it would, and then and then goes to the su- the suspended note. There's just this constant like yearning in that melody. And it's it's beautiful. Like even the melody itself conveys the feeling of the song, which is him trying to console the neglected child of his best friend, who he happens to be making unprecedented amounts of money writing unprecedented songs with. Like it's a very complicated feeling that he has. Like he wants to comfort this kid. And people go into bars and just abuse this song and just like destroy its meaning because they 
Oh, they want to get the bar of people going, no, 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 no. And the way that's, if you play that song right, it feels so sad. And then John Lennon's harmony is gorgeous. It's one of the best vocal harmonies in the Beatles catalog um, on the last verse. And then at the end, it's like there's catharsis. And, and the, the catharsis, to me, it doesn't feel... Um, it doesn't feel like anything was solved. It's just like, well, I guess I'll go on anyway. And if you do it right, the na na nas you can do for five minutes and it feels like you've been doing it for only 10 seconds. Right on, Joe. We'll, we'll see you during the holidays again, rocking out 200 plus Beatles tunes. We're back with a bonus episode next week to preview a new Evergreen podcast show from a friend of the show, Vince Tornero. His show Profiles is back for an entire season about more Cleveland rock and roll history. His series called The Wrath of the Buzzard, about the famous rock station WMMS in Cleveland, still called The Buzzard. He'll have 30 plus years of stories and interviews with the biggest names in rock and a lot of hijinks from rock radio's golden years. A great Ohio story, but also a great story about the rise and fall of radio in the late 20th century and certainly here in the 21st. Can't wait to hear it. We'll have that bonus episode previewing The Wrath of the Buzzard next Tuesday, and then we're back on our normal episode schedule. Our next episode, we'll be talking about one of my favorite and most consequential Ohioans. We will sit down with best-selling author and repeat guest Walter Starr to discuss Senator, Governor, Secretary of the Treasury during the Civil War, and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Salmon P. Chase of Cincinnati. It's going to be a great season. We hope you enjoyed this one. We'll see you next week. grown-up me too yep me too but you know these days being a grown-up can really suck luckily we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation we had video arcades and also some of the best tv and movies ever made we lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics the list goes on and on yep generation x exactly and we're gen x grown-up every week the gen x grown-up podcast explores media tech toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.